0: This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello, and welcome to Goad Kicker. I am your host, Carl D. Smith. Welcome back to the Goat Kicker Podcast, episode 13. I like to think of myself as someone who can be taught something. I'm a teachable person. I feel like I'm willing to change. I'm willing to take in new information and at least give it like a test run. Maybe even if it's, you know, half-hearted, at least I'm willing to give it a try. Try it on, see how it works for me. I don't really see myself as a know-it-all. Maybe I act like a know-it-all. And maybe all of us that have pride problems don't really see ourselves as someone that bristles at coaching. But but I feel like I'm a teachable person. Uh, There's been all these moments in my life when I can distinctly remember lessons that were being taught to me, either through people who were in positions of authority or through fiction that I was ingesting. There would be a lesson, the lesson being uh, either, uh, you know... um, Something that the writer really hoped to convey, something that the purpose of that particular fiction uh, existed for, or for crass reasons like with G.I. Joe's PSAs at the end of their cartoons. Something that existed only to game the system, to be able to be on the airplay uh, as a glorified commercial as often as they could during the week. Uh, under the guise of educational or moral uh, edu- uh, substance for for children, but I can think back to a few of these messages and uh, and how they stuck with me and how they made you know a definite impact on my personality, on my morality, perhaps the biggest one probably and kids my age will remember this easy, and it's uh, Nancy Reagan Nancy Reagan and her uh, just say no. <coughs> Pardon me. I feel like Nancy Reagan's uh, campaign to get kids to just say no to drugs was really effective to me, and I don't know why. I really don't know why. I wasn't really in the, I wasn't really in an area um, of life where I was seeing the devastation of drugs firsthand. I lived in a normal midwestern town. There were drugs. I was aware of that. I didn't see drugs. I knew what some of the drugs were just because friends of mine had older brothers and occasionally we would get exposed to it via television, you know, cable television invading everyone's homes with their crazy uh, lifting of the the curtain to to peek behind uh, the, the false facade of television into the real grimy world out there. but. But I I knew of drugs. I didn't really know anyone that used drugs. I didn't see it in my family. Uh, And if there was, it wasn't talked about. But I knew drugs were bad. And and for the fact that the president's wife said, just say no or there will be trouble, it was the implication. And it was enough for me. And I was just, okay. Okay, I'm just going to say no to drugs. And they've never really appealed to me. And, you know, we all have those moments in our life where we decide to push the boundaries of our chemical use. For some of us, it's illicit drugs. Some of us, it, it's legal drugs. And it just never really appealed to me to to go off the deep end, to, to binge. And I know people who grew up in a very similar situation to me, had the very similar upbringing, who, who acted differently, that did dabble. And it's uh, it's interesting. It's just uh, it's something that I always think about when I sit down and think about you know why did I end up the way that I am? And I guess you could say it's because of Nancy Reagan, which is really bizarre. <laughs> it's really weird because the message was simple. It had no scientific uh, justification to it on the surface. It was just say no, authority says so, and I agree. So uh, so. You know, politic grandma said not to do it. another one that has always stuck with me is um when it comes to littering on Sesame Street, they had a little cartoon once about what would happen if everybody in the world littered, and it really bummed me out because it was like when I was starting to try to discern ideas and not just absorb them, and I'm like, that's ridiculous. Wait, no, there really is a lot of us, and then I started thinking about trash and it used to stress me out almost as bad as the thought of nuclear war was what's going to happen with all this trash that we just pile up and throw out and we have to, it has to go somewhere and it's a it's a thought that's come back to me several times in my life not so much that I've ever become an off-the-grid recycling guru or anything but it's a lesson that stuck with me if you like different strokes You might remember the episode where Arnold and his friend go to the guy's bicycle shop and either get molested or nearly molested. That was a very special episode of Different Strokes. I remember that episode. I do not consider that a lesson learned, though, because I only remember it for being completely uncomfortable and wondering why the man had the little boys take their shirts off. I couldn't make sense of it. Like... What were they implying? I don't understand. Is there something I don't know? Is there some weird thing that adults can do to kids when their shirts are off? It was just confusing more to anything. But the thing that I do remember from Different Strokes is there's an episode where they deal with shoplifting at a department store because the cameras can see in the fitting rooms. The rest of my life, from the time I saw that episode, the first time I saw it as a child, I was terrified to try clothes on. And it took me years to work through that. And to reason that the technology and the spacing just didn't make sense for the malls we had in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Now, of course, technology allows you to do that stuff because everything is small and easy and cheap to install. But as a child, I always wondered who was looking at me through the mirror. And I didn't want them to see my underwear. I didn't want to change clothes because some stranger was watching for shoplifters. And I remember one time trying on clothes and making it a point, almost like I was a blackjack dealer at a casino to make sure that whoever was watching through that mirror knew that I wasn't shoplifting. I sat down my shoes, but I made sure I turned them so they could see that, you know, the bottom had been black maxed back together because the sole was floppy on my Payless shoes. They weren't new shoes. I wasn't shoplifting them when I put them under my jeans that I wore in. And I was super careful to pile all the stuff that I wore in separate from the stuff I was trying on while my mom knocked on the door outside and embarrassed me, <laughs> wanting me to come out and do fashion show for her. So that was a lesson I remember. Another lesson I remember was my father. Uh, uh, who, we were somewhere in Colorado, and uh, there was river rocks. They were nice and smooth, and I wanted to take one. And there was a sign that said, you know, don't take river rocks. or You know, don't take rocks from the park, from the national park, from the state park. I remember thinking, like, why is that? And so I asked my dad, because who else do you ask? You know, dads know everything. And my dad said, well, because if everybody took a rock, there'd be no rocks left. And I looked around, and all I could see were rocks. As far as the eye could see, and as far as I knew at that point in my life, rocks were formed and delivered via river. I don't have any comprehension of where they come from how they got there. But I could just see rocks for miles and miles and I'm like but I'm just one person I'm just going to take this one rock. Look at all these rocks. All these rocks that will be left. And I remember wrestling with that in the car. My dad said it but I don't know if I believe it but he's dad and he knows a lot of stuff. And I remember like having like this overused word we use called an epiphany. But I remember having sort of an epiphany that like, you know what? There's a lot of people in the world and Colorado is pretty awesome. And a lot of people probably come and visit Colorado. And if they all took rocks, it probably would take all the rocks. So it checked out for me. And I remember thinking like, yeah, you shouldn't take stuff. You shouldn't take souvenirs from natural places. And it just validated my dad as the go to guru for everything in my brain. But I remember wrestling with that, but then it's sticking with me the rest of my life. It's weird when you have these moments where uh, you can recall something that directly influences your attitude, your personality, your decision making as an adult. And it's even weirder when it's stuff that comes in pop culture, you know, whether it be a Spider Man comic or Sesame Street or. Uh, different strokes, (laughs) wherever you get your inspiration from. And the more they try to force it on you, the more they try to say, hey, kids, you like comics, you'll like these church comics we made with this superhero that loves the Lord and only obeys the Ten Commandments, the more they made it obvious, we were on to them. For some reason, we were on to them. And those lessons didn't necessarily stick to us. But every once in a while, something would organically arise within fiction, within television shows that would mean something to us, that we would learn to adhere to for better or for worse. And I've seen it happen in my friends that, like, they'll idolize – a certain fictional character and the way they look at life or the way they handle situations and emulate that in their own life. And while they haven't been completely off the deep end and spend their entire life acting like the scoundrel Han Solo or, you know, the or whatever you want to say, Deadpool, the Wisecracker. We've all kind of gleaned these things from our fictional uh, experiences, and some of us more so than others, and it's actually affected and changed your personality. It became a part of the nurture of nature versus nurture. And I'm curious if any of you can think of any of those things, anything in your life that was a lesson taught through fiction that you recall to this day and... You can honestly say it's affected you as a person. I'd love to hear these. You can follow me at Twitter at CarlSmithRider. So you can send things to me there or via um or via the dist- uh <laughs> the the DMs, the direct messages. I forgot what it stood there for a minute. Or you can reach out to me via email, CarlsmithRider at gmail.com. And then we're going to try something new. Anchor has made it easier to incorporate voicemails. If you want to give me an answer as a short audio file, you have to follow a link that I'm going to post to my Twitter. I'll pin it to my profile. And you can link it on there from your phone or from your computer and leave me an audio file that I can use on a future episode as an answer to this question. And I'll also post it up on lakelord.com. I'll try to do that as this episode goes live so that it's there waiting for you. You can actually leave a response or a comment to me regarding anything. I mean, keep it clean. I don't have to use everything on the air. But if you leave something short and concise and thoughtful, even if it's off-topic, I'm more than happy to play it on the show. Because that's what this show is all about, right? Is off-topic rambling in consideration of of topics that affect our lives, but from a nerd point of view. And I'm not the only nerd uh, involved with Goat Kicker. Sorry to point the mirror at you all, but we're all in this together. So what are some fictional things that have kind of set the tone for your attitude, for your decision-making? Can you think of any of them? Are there any that you would admit to that you think are funny or ones that you think are very significant? Are you so into Batman that you see yourself as... A loner with zero tolerance for, for, for crime or for uh, the things that go on in the city, and you feel protective of the city or you feel protective of your neighborhood. Do you see yourself as a spider Jerusalem? Do you see yourself as Indiana Jones' house? Whatever your nerddom is, do you see yourself as a character from that? And do you exemplify those attitudes? Let me know, either on Twitter, via email, via voicemail. And let's talk about this. So to continue along the theme of uh, fictional works that... uh, that become a part of your actual day-to-day decision-making or thought processes? Your worldview is a term that I'm fond of. Have you ever let your worldview in turn sort of prejudge fiction that you came across? I think this happens quite a bit. Um, Those of us that have a certain religious uh, background, depending on what that religious background is and what flavor of that religious upbringing or experience or exposure we've had, either find ourselves drawn or repelled from fiction uh, of religious nature. Some people gobbled up the Left Behind book series which was a Christian fantasy series uh, dwelling on um, the very fictional and uh, theologically uh, um, problematic uh, interpretation of the end times. But then, someone like myself, I, uh, the minute they said, Oh, it's about the end times, I was like, Ew, <laughs> no, no, thank you. Others uh, who share religious backgrounds with me, it's interesting because we'll look at a property like uh, the recent Judas uh, comic book. And while I was willing to check it out, um, I wasn't really particularly interested in it. Um, Wasn't offended by it, but it didn't have any of what I wanted from uh, in it. But then my friend, like Tim... Who has you know a religious uh background uh, has a faith of his own, like many of us do um found it wonderful and really enjoyed it. Um, I believe the the guys over at uh worst podcast ever uh, worst comic podcast ever uh checked it out and had favorable things to say about it and it wasn't a bad work, but just something about my worldview, my relationship with faith and the stories that are put forth in the Bible just sort of didn't mesh with what was being presented there. On the other hand, Mark Russell's uh, God is Disappointed in You, I loved deeply, and matter of fact found inspiration from it, and was a little irritated because that was the sort of thing that I some. Someday, somehow, hope to, to do myself was an irreverent, uh, rebellious, but uh, respectful uh, look at the, the concepts and the stories of the Bible. And I could see where someone would be offended by that book <clears throat> due to its irreverence. But it's not punching down, you know, it's, a, it's reasonable, it's fair, it's informed, it's researched. But people might think differently. I could see where people who have no dog in the fight are able to pass up in it because they just don't care. They just don't care. And this extends beyond fiction. But we'll focus on fiction because, again, with nerd culture, uh, fiction sort of rules the day. But the things that we carry to the table before we sit down in front of a piece of fiction, before we sit down to play a video game or watch a movie, sometimes matter in how we judge, how we appreciate that particular creative work. There was a time in the 80s that if you mentioned the word anime... Uh, no one would know what you're talking about. And to let on that you knew what you were referring to by the word anime uh, and what that represents was almost like a code word that helped you find your people. And the same with manga. Probably more so with manga. You couldn't just go to Barnes & Noble or... uh, or um, Walden books and buy manga. It just wasn't available. If it was printed at all, it was flipped back the appropriate, uh, the quote-unquote appropriate English way of reading from left to right and often printed in graphic novel size or a comic book even. Which my entire life up to a particular point I accepted and and didn't understand why people made such a big deal about it being represented in its po- uh, uh, appropriate format. And until I got involved with creative works of my own, did uh, I realized that there's a certain uh, flow and uh, storytelling art uh, visually with graphic storytelling. That gets neutered a little bit when you start rearranging panels. This is really evident if you go back into the 70s and look at those little paperback uh, reprints of Marvel comics or DC comic books. They're the same size as like your usual, you know, pocket book, paperback novels. And you can buy Conan and the Fantastic Four. These are all things that I've owned and actually read as a kid. Picked them up at garage sales and flea markets and had very positive experiences with them. But now looking back, they're almost unreadable. Now that I have access to those originally presented uh, items, now looking back at them, uh, they're hard to read. Because instead of shrinking the page, which would have made it almost uh, unreadable to fit, the format and size of a paperback, they just chopped up the pages into, um, into their uh, frames, into their panels, and arranged them as such. Shrunk them a little bit to get them to fit. And it changes the storytelling. It almost makes reading those books a chore compared to the original format. And so there's this time in America where not only do we not know what manga is, the stuff that we're exposed to, it's just Japanese comic books, and we can manipulate and uh, and, uh, mutilate it as we need to to fit our expected formats. And then there was this kind of sweet spot where the stuff was starting to hit our shores officially... And with a little bit more care and understanding of what it was. And was starting to get a foothold enough that it was getting some extra looks. It wasn't just us Japanophiles that were uh, were being exposed to it. We stopped calling the cartoons Jap animation. Which is got some, it's a clever play on words, but it also has some almost racial connotations to it. And we started using anime more frequently. Uh, manga and uh, even manhwa, uh, which I believe is the Korean uh, art form of comic book storytelling, uh, those started hitting the shores with some appropriate uh, presentations, enough so that uh, it started to take notice from a larger community. And one of the things that was it was interesting to say is uh, is wow, these are really good, or that story was surprisingly good, or I didn't think I would like it, and holy cow, it blew my socks off. For the American market, some of the work was done for you, because people who were in the know about these illustrated fictions championed uh, high-profile projects like uh, that were already well-loved and well-received, like Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, the, the works of Osamu Tezuka, um, uh, Akira uh, that we've mentioned before, I think, as, bun- as well as a bunch of dreck that came across, but those high-profile ones that came across via Viz Communications, or uh, Dark Horse uh, in their tireless work to try to present the best of graphic storytelling that wasn't being covered by the, the the major publishing houses. So the quality was already sort of curated for us. But once we sort of dipped our toe into the pool on our own and there was actually some choices on the shelf that had allowed us the freedom of, of discovery, you constantly heard people say, I didn't think I'd like this, but I really enjoyed it. Or I was really blown away by how good this was. Why haven't we talked about this before? But the assumption was, is because it was not from our market, because it wasn't American, that it was surprising if it was good, if it was captivating, if it was deep. And this is something that I've found uh, that's come up time and time again in all of my hobbies, whether it be music or movies that something that isn't a household name in America, that may or may not have ever even truly been translated, but somehow you get a hold of like a subtitled, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) version or something along those lines, that it's surprising that it's good, that it has quality, that it has value. And you hate to throw around the word racist, but it definitely has sort of, Uh, a hint of bigotry to it to think that only the things produced within my culture have value. My culture is so known for producing uh, culture. (laughs) My nation, American culture, is the culture factory. That's our big primary export, sadly enough. And I think our country is starting to see the ill effects of that being the case. But our biggest industry, basically, is culture, is philosophy, is entertainment and leisure, things of that nature. And so this idea that like something that comes from without being useful or or impressive or of note definitely is pretty telling. We see this in all walks of life, you know, when uh when we see something like in the spirituality realm, uh metaphysics or something and you see something that someone practices and it has use and there's a long uh there's a long history of skepticism with it and it gets associated with people who are flaky, uh, who adopt new things and move on or or just aren't quite all right to start with. And then eventually it will take hold and they'll find there's benefits and then we'll apply our, our Western obsession with uh, the scientific method to it and we'll find that we can get some um, statistically relevant data that says that something like yoga has a great benefit to different parts of our human experience and then those papers get published and it validates it and we're sort of surprised who knew who knew this art form had been practiced for thousands of years before the United States was even established had some value how could it have Our doctors didn't come up with it. It wasn't prescribed to us in our religious texts. So you're sort of stuck between these two extremes of of being credulous, where everything, you're up to try everything and see what happens and just sort of accept everything without any sort of preconceived judgment, which is wonderful and whimsical and magical, but I think it's also fraught with a lot of road bumps. And maybe even some traps that uh, uh, that you could avoid by having some discretion, some gatekeeping. But then on the other end, you have this weird notion that only things that come or are designed within our group or fit a certain mold or have a certain pedigree or a value. And then you miss out on this wide, wonderful world, this, this enormous spectrum of possibilities and philosophies that represent the human being. I was a part of a, a teleconference uh, not that long ago, actually just this morning, um, uh, regarding uh, rattlesnake uh, antidote. Not just rattlesnakes, crotaline snakes in general, but for the sake of this discussion, I'll, I'll, I'll quote-unquote dumb it down and just say that snake bites, venomous snake bites... Do you realize we didn't really have an anti-venom of any uh, clinical significance until about the year 2000? So, when I graduated high school—high <coughs> school, pardon me—this cough is sneaking up on me uh, as I try to talk. I do apologize, but as I graduated high school, we were still eight years away from the FDA allowing there to be a product that we could use and administer to people who had been bitten by a rattlesnake to keep them from the myriad problems that come with rattlesnake envenomation. It doesn't seem like that long ago. That's how old we're getting. The 18 years, 19 years doesn't seem that long ago. It's modern. It's recent. We specifically remember where we were and how much life we lived prior to the year 2000. And yet that has only existed in that small window of time, this this 20 years where we've had this available. There's a new product coming out that's an improvement of it. It's called uh, AnaVip. And I won't bore you with the specifics, but it has a much longer half-life. It's basically the same sort of chemical uh, immune globulin. However, it's a dimer, so it has two proteins that are still attached which makes it more uh, kinetically uh, beneficial. In treatment, you don't have a rebound uh, after discharge from the hospital of coagulation problems that come with being uh, envenomated uh, with crotaline snake venom. It has a much more standardized loading dose and there isn't really a need for maintenance doses And if there is a repeat dosing needing because of a resurgence of symptoms, it's a very simple, just give another four vials and and, and ride it out, rather than this constant feathering and administration of maintenance dosing. It's fascinating. It, 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 it's, you know, the year 2019, we're still discovering uh, applications and, and researching And not many people a year are bit that become clinically uh, symptomatic by these snakes. And even fewer die. Uh, Single digits in the United States die from these envenomations. But to know that, like, that number can almost be negligible uh, thanks to having medical treatment. If you're the one that gets bit, or your wife, or your child, or your father gets bit by a crotaline snake, you would expect, because this is America, for there to be a treatment. And there have been treatments, but they haven't always been good ones, and they're getting better, even up till today. The reason I bring this up now is because this new product that just hit the shelves in 2018, it was approved by the FDA in 2015 but there was some legal wrangling that prevented it from being sold until 2018. So we've had it approved by the FDA since 2015, which means the the preliminary studies, the different clinical trials that needed to be done, the papers that needed to be written, the uh, applications that needed to be filled out, verified, and presented to the FDA have all happened probably in the last 20 years. Actually, a lot less, probably the last 10 years. So we've been aware, you would think, of this product for about 10 years and just now are able to reap the benefits from it. And now the the representatives of this company are out trying to detail uh, and, and, let's be honest, try to sell their product to different hospital and health systems, to doctors to let them know it exists, what the benefits of it are, why it's uh, clinically um, favorable to the, the already existing treatment that's on their shelf probably already. And so that process has begun. And we continually find that people are impressed. It had an impressive uh, trial as far as the almost uh, non-existent recurrence of some of the the rebound symptoms that come from these envenomations. But here's the deal. This drug has been used, not discovered, not developed, not theorized. This drug has been manufactured and used in Mexico since 1984 nineteen eighty four they have had this drug for almost four decades now, saving lives with minimal clinical uh, side effect post uh, discharge from the hospital and enjoying the benefits of this particular therapy at a time when we in America didn't even have. Crofab, which was this miraculous new treatment that was made available to us in the year 2000. They were two steps ahead of us. And what is our opinion of Mexico as a country? What's being fed to us constantly about the state of the nation of Mexico? Even in the presentation... After the clinical data has been wrapped up and then the, the gentleman that steps in that has a little bit more idea about the financial and, uh, and um, the sat- market saturation type information comes on the call, one of the talking points, it wasn't a main talking point, but something that they, uh, you, you get if you've been in enough of these calls with drug companies, you, you kind of know the format and what to expect. And they have this this list of talking points that they need to make sure they mention because there there are things that have been identified as questions or uh, or uh, or doubts or um, benefits that. Um, uh, are secondary to the presentation of the drug itself. And they know if they mention these things, it will get wheels turning. It's a part of the marketing. It's a part of the negotiation, a part of the adoption of a new therapy, which is always difficult, especially in a, a drug space that already has a therapy that's that's now known and, and trusted and hadn't been used and in many cases already purchased and stockpiled. So just as this man will mention that they have an aggressive uh, replacement strategy that you only have to buy it once as a hospital if you don't use it because six months before the expiration date, you can return it for full credit and they'll replace it. And so your your two-year lifespan of it being on the shelf because the FDA will only allow up to two years of authorization for a biologic That you just pull it off the shelf and it'll immediately be replaced through the magic of credits and debits, and so your investment over the next ten years, if you don't use it, is the same as your investment for two years. The product will always be available for use in an emergency, and you won't have to continually rebuy it, which is a big deal for you know a ten vial dose that costs about ten to eleven grand. That's cost. That's wholesale cost. That's not what you would be billed. You'd be billed something along the lines of probably seventy grand for it. But there's bigger reasons <clears throat> and a bigger discussion behind that. But one of the talking points they got to was this offhand comment almost towards the end that Mexico itself has benefited from the United States uh, adopting their drug. It's manufactured in America or in Mexico. We do not manufacture that, this drug there or here. So the packaging, the dosing, all that was things that were established and already in motion from Mexico. But they're sure to mention that the, Mexi- the, na- the nation of Mexico and its people are benefiting from our adoption of this because in order for it to be sold here to this enormous market, With all the money that's in our healthcare system, (coughs) all of the standards have to be done to FDA standard, the manufacturing, the handling, all of that, packaging. And the idea is communicated that before the FDA got involved, before this became an American uh, approved product, that somehow those processes were lacking or inferior, And there's this weird understanding that you come to the table with that needs to deal with that aspect. And not everybody holds these views, but it's interesting to someone who thinks too much about these things to see that need to be mentioned. Because it's easy to identify why. Why that was brought up. It's because we come to the table assuming that something from outside... Already has a steep hill to climb to prove its value. Right around the time I got into pharmacy school, it would have been when I was applying to pharmacy school, I think, um, a movie came out in Korea, uh, South Korea, called Returner. I believe it's a Korean movie. I may be mistaken about that. It may be Chinese, but I'm pretty sure it's Korean. It's a high-budget movie has to do with some time travel. It's a science fiction movie. Very good movie. I don't remember the plot very clearly. I haven't watched it in at least 10 years, if not longer. But there's a scene towards the end of that movie where there's uh, some robotic involvement that's the first time high-budget special effects have been used in a way to interpret uh, uh, something transforming, a robot transforming. And it was the first time on a big screen that I saw something. I'm like, wow, they could do a Transformers movie. That looks incredible. And I couldn't believe, like, why isn't this on HBO? Why isn't this, you know, in our theaters? It's incredible. The special effects are amazing. The story was fun. And it predated the Michael Bay Transformer movie. So it had this cool transforming robot scene. That, by the way, looks a lot more traditional uh, from what we expect from the Transformers cartoons than the Michael Bay transformations, but it really knocked my socks off. Now, if I go back and watch it now, I'll probably laugh that I say that because I'm sure that it's dated, like all special effects get, get. but my assumption was, was that this movie from, from Korea had no right to be that good because it wasn't from Hollywood. It wasn't from America. Somehow we need to get past that in our fictional uh, diet. And it's something I've challenged myself to do. The more that I step away consciously from things that are marketed specifically, or at least primarily, to the American audience, I'm finding myself finding more art and less product, less commodity. Because let's face it, most of those comic books you read on a weekly basis that you have on your pull file is a commodity. A lot of those television shows that you're consuming is a commodity. It's not truly art. Not always. Not in the way that uh, art can uh, invoke certain feelings and sticks with you and elicit a response and uh, have you ruminate and think about it. And sort of reflect about different conditions, uh, different parts of the human condition. That sort of art. And I've got into a lot of European comic books, both old and new. And while some of that stuff's a commodity as well, it's really opened up uh, my eyes to what can be accomplished with visual graphic storytelling. And as much as I love the first 112 issues or so of the Fantastic Four comic book... It's a really, uh, as innovative as it was at the time, and some risks and some innovations that happened during that part of the run, in hindsight, it looks really limiting. It looks really uh, stuffy. And I think that's what happened towards the end of the 70s and into the beginning of the 80s with comic books, is there was a format, there was an expectation, there was a cookie-cutter approach to both the writing and the illustration and the presentation of these comics. And they really started to stagnate. That doesn't mean they're not enjoyable. It doesn't mean they're not worth something or have some artistic merits. But when you look at products from other nations, then you're shocked. Like, wow, this came out in 1978. Marvel Comics was doing uh, what if Spider-Man met uh, Saturday Night Live at the same time that this wonderful, insightful, philosophical, and gorgeously drawn uh, epic was being published in Germany and not released in America until 1990? That shouldn't disorient or surprise you. Unless you have this predisposed notion that only you, only your tribe, only your experiences, only your nation can be responsible for art. Or for achievement, or for value. So I think in the nerd culture, uh, we need to grow beyond that. If you're trying to get the most bang for your buck, as far as looking at a medium and uh, understanding the possibilities and uh, and the uh, and the inspiration that can be shared through that medium, you have to start stop limiting it to borders or pedigrees. (coughs) One final comment, and I won't dwell on this long because I'm not the best authority on this. But I do want to throw out because it's in the same vein. I think when you see resistance in the media, or on the social medias anyway, to female-led or (laughs) female-involved Nerd culture. I think it has the same root cause as what I'm talking about today. It's that the assumption you come to the plate with is, is that this is a male art form. Dare I say a white male art form. And to anything that deviates from that cannot be quality. It's a prejudgment you're making. And I think it's a cousin too, if not directly descended from this attitude that we have, that we've uh, we've, uh, defined these borders of where quality can arise from and ignore everything else outside those borders. So this isn't a rant so much about you need to buy more comics from France. As much as it is, you need to sit down and reflect on on your own consumption, your own experiences with an art form that you love and ask yourself some hard questions. What are the preconceptions that I'm bringing with me to this media? What am I projecting upon these art forms that are making me not enjoy it or not able to benefit from its experience? And possibly do a little legwork, a little self-improvement, a little shifting of your worldview to open your eyes to new experiences. I think it'd be very beneficial. And one of the things that Goad Kicker has always talked about is nerd culture taking a moment to step away to laugh about which uh, female superhero you'd most like to bang. And talk more about what the hell are we doing with our lives What does our nerd culture consumption mean? Uh, What's it do to us? Is it hurting us? Is it helping us? What does it say about us? What can we benefit from it? What can we use to weaponize, to better the world around us? And what part of it is the anchor that we're holding onto while we're drowning? So I think this concept of just evaluating prejudice or preconceptions... It's very valuable. It's very valuable. And I think uh, in the end, um, when it comes to like art appreciation in general, I think abandoning these or redefining them is a continual process of what you'll accept and what you reject and what you find interest in and what you're going to challenge yourself to experience even though it's something that normally you would turn your nose up at and how that affects you. And being able to look at something on the page and appreciate it for what it is versus what you want it to be or what you think it should be. And this will lead us into another discussion that we'll have at a different time about separating art from artists. How challenging are you allowed to... Uh, Or are you allowing subject matter or uh, an artist to be before you finally put up a wall and say, I just simply cannot take part of this? Are there themes that you will avoid no matter what, no matter why or who is presenting it? Do you make allowances for certain artists or certain contexts? Or are you completely permissive, and are able to separate the two things almost to a point where it validates a problematic piece of art or artist's existence. And I think we can't have that discussion until we've talked about this, that we talked about today, is about the effect of preconceived notions and barriers that you bring to the table when enjoying art. So what do you think? Are there things in art that you simply avoid? Do you avoid any uh, commentary, uh, negative or alternative views on Jesus, for instance? Or do you purposely seek that out because you like to see religion lampooned? Do you avoid art that depicts rape in any uh, sort? Do you think it's something that should be removed from all fiction? How about nudity? Or, do you only tend to enjoy English origin works of art? Have you stepped out of your culture? Have you stepped out of of your shared experience? Is there music? Are there video games? Are there movies, television shows that you've that you've learned to enjoy that are from outside of what your particular experience in life were do you realize there's entire uh, schedules of television shows that we never see here that are slice of life television but that slice of life is very different than our slice of life it may have to do with uh, Muslim families Japanese culture Chinese culture Indian culture And all the different things that come along with the differences in cultures. And those things exist and are consumed and have their own mythology and fan bases. And it's completely removed from our experience. All that stuff cannot be objectively bad. Just because we aren't exposed to it or it hasn't become a hit in the United States. So are you seeking that stuff out? Do you, are you willing to do some of the homework to figure out why the jokes are funny? What context, what lifestyles and mythology exist within that culture that inform that piece of fiction? Are you putting any of that work in? Or are you only valuing things that immediately make sense to you in context of who you are, where you live what you were taught by your parents and the educational institutions and your experiences as a human being. I think it'd be interesting to look into that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You can reach me on Twitter, at CarlSmithWriter. You can DM me, you can write me. Just tweet me straight up front in public if you want. I don't care. I'll engage you either way. Or you can email me if you'd rather talk about it elsewhere carlsmithrider at gmail.com I'd love, 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 love to hear your understanding or your your commentary on this particular uh, topic. Well, that wraps up the uh, 13th episode of Goad Kicker. Hope it gave you a little bit to think about. This is a more traditional Kicker episode. Uh, I'm starting to feel my stride a little bit. I can still tighten things up a little bit, maybe. I can stop coughing into the microphone. I'm sure you all would uh, appreciate that. But I think as far as subject matter, we're starting to get back into the swing of things. This is the sort of thing that gold Kicker is concerned about. We all understand that video games exist that books exist that comic books we don't need another podcast that talks about how wonderful Akira is, but there aren't many contact uh podcasts out there talking about you know the what parts that are we drawn to that others aren't, or what are we spending or what have we given up to pursue these hobbies and you know, why do we feel like we need some sort of physical representation of these fictional characters to be in our possession in order to feel like a fan? What sort of pseudo, pseudo-religious pseudo or psychological hooks are in these fictions that uh, that stick to our lives, and, and how does fiction affect our life, and is it positive, is it negative? These are the sorts of things that Goat Kicker is uh, interested in. and from some of the feedback that I've received from the handful of you who are are true Kicker fans, that's why you're here. That's what you're interested in. It's not the sound of my voice. It's not my, uh, you know, inscrutable uh, research. It's not the topicality. It's this viewpoint that doesn't get a voice, which is, can we step back a minute and look at us as nerds and evaluate us fairly? Sometimes critically. It's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, exercise. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't always offer an answer, nor do I think that I have an answer to a lot of these questions I bring up. That the discussion is more important. Because what works for me might not work for you. And I think that's a philosophy in itself that we don't always share in nerd culture. That we tend to be hardliners. Certain things uh, cannot be questioned or cannot be devalued. I mean, go and tell people that you thought the, the original three uh, movies, uh, Star Wars movies, were bunk and that you didn't enjoy them and see how far that gets you online. Because become, become passionate and, and uh, affixed to these fictions. We're invested in them. So it's sort of fun to have a place, even as small as the Goat Kicker podcast, to to vocalize these things, to talk about value, to talk about philosophy, to talk about the effect on our lives as nerdish human beings. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you become a part of the discussion. I hope it's something that you can think about after uh, the hour of me talking ends. And as always, I would love for you to engage me on these things because the conversation is fun and I do think it's meaningful and I do think it's beneficial. So until next time, guys, take it easy.